wonder when the last time was when you had someone explain you to you. Uh, for whatever reason, my mind is fixated on my life as a child when invariably sometime in the middle of the night, why was it the middle of the night, your child would wake up with the stomach virus. And you'd lean down over them and you'd have to say, and they would walk up into your, into your bedroom in the middle of the night with this look on their face like, what, what is happening to me? And you would try to explain to them that there was this little bug that once it gets inside of your tummy, it wants everything else in your tummy out. And you saw some sense of relief kind of come over their face where you weren't too terribly surprised by what was going on with them. And of course, you always had the same struggle trying to explain the inner workings of the human respiratory system and why their cough wasn't going away. Well, it's strange to sort of go through these conversations, but I remember those kinds of things sort of recurred as time went on. Uh, I remember when I was in sixth grade when boys and girls began to kind of pair up with each other and romance began to form. But there was a certain young lady, never mind her name, who began to pay a little extra attention to me. She likes you, someone told me. To which later on I was like, I don't understand why. I certainly am not like the looker. <laughs> I know it's surprising to you now, but I wasn't quite the looker. Nor was I an athlete either, although it took me years to admit that to myself as well. But I would eventually be told, she thinks you are funny. And what's crazy is I can look back now and those pronouncements that were made about me when I was that younger, I've spent years trying to unpack. Well, the church had the same kind of voice in me as well. While I was at church, I found out that the reason why I did things wrong is because of this thing called sin. And that there was this God in heaven who had a standard that I was to keep, but that I didn't. And that's the reason why I needed to go to him for forgiveness. But you know, it's interesting, whenever I look back on those times in my life and upbringing, it seemed like those conversations felt so detached from the real life things that seemed to be going on every week. I, I, for whatever reason, they seemed remote from my life at school and among my friends. I've actually come to believe, for whatever it's worth, that one of the reasons why those explanations about my life seemed uh, so remote is because actually they were true. And what I was doing was, was I was taking that information and I was neutralizing it. I was very willfully, very subtly, but purposely pushing that information to the periphery of my thinking. My point is, though, this process of explaining me to me never really ended. Even now, in our, in our, in our marriages, you can still hear this going on. Getting married is a massive adjustment to these verdicts that people are passing on you. You know, obviously, every now and then, sometimes those verdicts were positive. I remember Ginger saying, I just don't have any idea how it is that you get up and speak in front of people. I don't know how to do that. Well, I'd never thought about that. I'd always wanted to get up in front of people and start talking. It was never that big a deal. But sometimes those conversations were negative. You know, sometimes our spouses have to be the ones who look at us and say, oh, you're so insensitive. What are they doing? They're giving us feedback and explaining you to you. Well, we began last week this study in the Ten Commandments by saying that the Ten Commandments co contain for us our manufacturer's design. It is God's map for how we work as human, human beings. But the reason why we work that way is because the Ten Commandments are not primarily about us. The Ten Commandments are primarily about revealing who God is. 
And when we discover who he is, we, being created in his image, begin to find our way into true human flourishing when all of a sudden we begin to imitate him. And of course, just like the relief that spreads across your child's face when you explain to them what's going on with their stomach virus, Christians oftentimes find a great sense of relief in realizing why it is that they do what they do and getting at the motivational centers of their life. But here's something important what the commandments are about. The commandments are not just about a description. They're also about a formation. You know, they don't just describe what makes you tick, but they also set the parameters for what God wants us to do in the world. We said last week that these newly freed people from Egypt get the Ten Commandments so that they could be formed into the image of their daddy. They were, literally speaking, to image him. But here's the rub. Human beings need that formation because there's a principle inside every one of us that wants to image anything but God. Just like when I was in in high school and I was neutralizing all this information, human beings have a proclivity to, to fashion themselves into any other likeness other than God as long as it's not God. But the the sad result of that is, is that we become less human as we do. We actually become, the Bible will say, beastly, like the beasts and the animals. And this is the reason why we have our first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. This is such a foundational uh, study. I want to do two weeks on it. We're going to study this week and next week this foundational truth. And I, I feel like I need to say, that years ago I read a paper by a, a counselor, the late counselor and therapist David Paulison, a little article called Idols of the Heart that made such a powerful impression on me uh, that when I combined it with uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, uh, I, I'm completely using material from those two sources uh, this morning, just so you know. So I'm going to look at two things this morning. First of all, the shape of our humanity, and second of all, the dynamics of our idolatry. First of all, the shape of our humanity. Look at verse 2. It simply says, you shall have no other gods before me. I actually should probably say deceptively simple because behind that one single commandment is a whole theology of our humanity that says basically this, you are what you are connected to. That's the simple statement. There is an architecture inside every human being's life that can only fully be understood by by looking at the value that that human places on the things around them. We look to them. We value them. We treasure them. We make them our sources of joy and of life. This is the sense that we mean when we say that in our humanity we were created to be worshipers. I've said it before. Human hearts are very much like intravenous needles. We become what we are by virtue of what we are hooked into. You know, an IV is nothing more than a needle, like a regular needle, until you hook it up to something. Well, likewise, the Bible teaches that mankind was created with this innate, inevitable capacity to lock onto power centers, to lock onto things that help us make sense of ourselves. And look, this is such a foundational Bible truth that once you see it, you'll realize it's in the entire Bible. 
In Genesis chapter two, when man is created, we find that he's created in his image. And again, we could spend a lot of time talking about what that phrase means, but for our purposes this morning, you simply need to grasp the fact that man in God's image possesses a measure of authority. He has authority, he can act. Man has the ability to change, manipulate, fashion, form his own surroundings. It's part of what it means to be in the image of God. But what you've got to realize is the Bible everywhere assumes that that authority is on loan. It's derived authority. Because nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that man is allowed to think or act or even speak outside of a direct dependence upon God. Look how the Ten Commandments begin. God says, I am the Lord your God. That word God there is the Hebrew word El. You'll see it be Elion or Elohim is how it's oftentimes pronounced. The word there literally translated means the mighty one. And it's as if Moses is using this word so they can remind these Jewish people, hey, this God is your creator. And because he's your creator, he owns you. And therefore, he has the right to do with you as he pleases. That little sentence, I don't know if you noticed, is crazy offensive to this generation who values freedom so much. Because it sounds like the kind of talk that motivates people to oppression and violence, like the things that we see around us. But what people often miss, though, is what God precedes that word God with, and that is the word Lord. He comes and says, I'm going to use my family name that I showed to Moses at the burning bush. God's saying, yes, it's absolutely true. I am Elohim, your creator, but you are also my creation. You're also one that I love, so I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. What's he saying? He says, I've revealed to you my name. I've entered into a personal relationship with you so that I can relate with you like you're a real person, not a robot or a toy. But the Bible's word for this kind of relationship It's the fancy word you hear us say, the word covenant. A covenant is just a bond. It's a connection, a a trust. You could even think of it as, as a contract, maybe. And so it means that human beings are built covenantally because we were made to be dependent on something. Look, from the moment of your birth, your tiny little soul is searching desperately for something to give you meaning acceptance, love, and truth, something to take joy in. And here's my point. That joy defined you. It created the parameters of possibility for you. Jesus would come along and say it this way in Luke 12, 34. He'd say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Good grief, that's so profound. (laughs) By nature, human beings are treasure hunters. We are looking for treasures to satisfy what I like to call a motivational center. The word that the Bible uses is called the heart. And that was made only to be satisfied ultimately when Yahweh occupies the the first position in the heart. Hence the command, you shall have no other God beside me. Worship only me. Why? Because that's the only way in which you work. Because you were built that way. Now look, before I move on to the next point, and the last point, can I make one little quick word of application here? If you don't frame 
these commands, and this is not just the first one, it's for the rest of them. In these parameters, you're actually going to end up treating sin very superficially. What do I mean by that? Well, I think oftentimes when we deal with sin, and even with repentance of sin, we tend to only mention the surface obvious thing. Oh, no, I I gossiped. Lord, forgive me. Oh, no, Lord, I realize I lied and I'm wrong. Lord, I lusted. In other words, we confess the thing, but the Bible says that deep underneath that action, there is something that you're living with and that you're covenanting with and contractually binding yourself to. But you were built in such a way that the only way in which you work properly is if God is that centering thing. But instead, because of a foundational rooted rebellion against God, we have bound ourselves to things that leave us destroyed and dysfunctional. That's the Bible's view of the human predicament. But once you grasp this, it'll help you understand why you came this morning. (laughs) Or at least why the leadership of this church hopes that you came this morning. Because so often when we use the word worship, we typically are thinking about what I would call the circumstances of worship. We think about the musicians. We think about the, uh, uh, the recitations. We think about the church building when we think of worship. But those again, those are the circumstances of worship. Worship proper is aligning my heart with the only real thing that it was built to treasure. And that is the true of the living God. That's what we are doing here. And the circumstances of worship are intended to lead us to that place. They're they're, they're the means, not the end. And I realize this may be jarring for us, but it means that among other things, it's entirely possible to be engaged in countless experiences with worship circumstances and never really touch the true motivators of your soul. What are you doing here is the question. Because only when you use the lens of idolatry, I believe, can you really unlock your behaviors in a powerful way that's really transformational. That's why this is so central. Okay, so the shape of our humanity, that's the first point. The second point and the last point are the dynamics of our idolatry. Keller does this wonderful job unpacking the dynamics of idolatry under four headings. Number one, he says this. He says, notice the motive of idolatry. What happens in us when we desire an idol is, we think that that idol is going to keep us under control, going to keep us in control. Look, the original sin in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve saying, I refuse to give God the supremacy in my life. You know, the temptation the devil brings is, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit and disobey him, that you're going to be like him. You know what's happening. He's trying to keep things away from you. And so they eat from a tree that's called what? The knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? They took from it to say, I want to be the one who decides what is right and wrong. I will be the one who is the judge over my life. The motive is for control. But secondly, Keller says that there's a delusion, a delusional aspect to idolatry. Look, An idol is almost always a good thing in itself that's been deified. Or idealized. There's almost never anything wrong with the thing in itself. Look, a career, gentlemen, is a good thing to be desired and to have. But how, how common is it? I would argue it's so common as to almost be cliche 
that we sell our souls to our jobs and give it ascendancy. The Bible looks and says you've made a covenant with whatever you're getting from that, that career. Look, likewise, wanting to get married and stay married is a good thing, but have you noticed how easy it is to sell your soul to that concept? So much so that when either getting married or staying married comes in conflict with God, God gets the boot really quickly. Why does that happen? Because you covenanted with the idea of marriage, or at least your idea of it. Let's take another. In the book of Proverbs, it says that desiring a good reputation is a good thing. But it's so easy to elevate that desire up to have influential friends that they're the ones that are molding you rather than God. Do you see how the delusion works there? The delusion of idols takes good things and warps them into things that hurt us instead of bless us. Thirdly, there's a salvation nature to idols. Idols have a way of looking at us and, and, and becoming a salvation for us. Isaiah 44 verse 17 says this, He makes a God his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, listen, save me for you are my God. In other words, there's this idea that we go to our idols because we want it to fix us, to make us somebody. So, look, she's way out of the spotlight now, and probably, thankfully so, as far as I'm concerned, but it used to be so easy to pick on Madonna from pulpits back in the day. Pop icon, pop star Madonna. I know she's sort of fading in the wayside now, but she used to say these amazing things, give these fantastic sermon illustration quotes, so we're still going to keep using them. Listen to what she said one time in an article. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I still find I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. It's fantastic. <laughs> because what is she saying? She's saying, I've been living this. If I don't succeed at this, I'm lost. It's like the fashion model who looks and says, if I ever lose my attractiveness and my looks, I don't know that I can keep going. I have nothing. I always wish that I could be in the hospital room with, with, the, with the number one pro prospect athlete the morning after he's just blown out his knee. And watch that entire life structure begin to crumble around them when they had placed so much value on their athletic skill. Hey, you know, and by the way, idols do not disappear with age, I am learning. They just tend to mellow. You know, the idols of old age, I think, have so much to do with this yearning. My father used to call it a yearning. From looking back at life and realizing how many missed opportunities you had, or looking back at your life and realizing how many broken relationships you had. And I do believe that even for us in older ages, it's important for us to ask this question in your later years. What topics have you grown unwilling to be consoled in at this age in your life? What streams of God's forgiveness are you refusing because of the way in which those memories haunt you still? That's ingrained idolatry because it's a refusal to live in God's forgiveness. And here's the great tragedy. The way you live in that regard can look so pious. 
seem so humble? Look, the salvation nature of idols is this. Unless I have this, I'm not justified. My life has no meaning if I don't achieve this, if I don't realize this, if I don't get this, if I don't live up to this. Then there's no reason to go on and my life is meaningless. The fourth thing, and we'll finish with this, there is also a slavery aspect to idols. Look, God says, unless I am your Lord, you will never be out of slavery truly. Because when you enter into idolatry, remember, you do it covenantally, which means it's like super glue. It bonds in seconds. This subtle, profound, and hidden process that the Bible says, I'm actually making bargains with these things. Quid pro quos. And for that reason, they have a power over you. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives this rather unsettling statement where he says that God at some certain point, when people persist in their rebellion, he, quote, gives them over to those desires. What does that mean? What he's saying is, is there's, at a certain point, good and normal desires take over and they become cocaine to you. They become heroin to you. They control you so much more than you have control over them. And be honest with you, this is one of those terrifying aspects of idolatries because they have a capacity to blind us. That's what idols are. It means that when you're under the control of the idols, the deception is not coming from the outside in. It's coming from the inside out. If you're deceiving me, that's one level of complication. But what happens when my deception comes from inside? How do you break that? <laughs> you know, I remember the day that the, the aforementioned sixth grade young lady uh, ended her relationship with me. You know, we were, at the, uh, the <laughs> we were at the skating rink, no less, the place where all real romance happened in those days. And I was under the impression that everything was fine. You know, I was cool, I was in, right? But she was acting really strange and kind of distant. And then her best friend came over and informed me of the news that actually a couple days before she had gotten back together with her old boyfriend. And suddenly I started looking around the room and I saw people's hands over their faces, you know, whispering to each other. A couple of them actually snickered. And I thought to myself, wow, the world that I thought that I knew is completely different. It's a, the things that I thought were true. The definition that I had of reality was not based in truth. And here's what happened to me. It hurt. Screams that dysfunction to us. I find it very interesting that there's a set of verses that we never get to when we're so wrapped up in John 3.16. The verses after that describe something really profound. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 19 of John. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it can be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Do you see what John is saying? The work of Jesus was aimed at dislodging my slavery to idols. Jesus came to sort of bring reality, or what John calls light, to enslaved people. 
so that he could end their slavery and bring us into what truth does, which is allowing us to see us for who we really are. But it's insane because we don't want the very thing that will be our blessing. A couple of years ago when I first took this job, I told you a little story about a woman named Gayla Benefield who was a meter reader in the tiny town of Libby, Montana. Uh, Libby, Montana, or Benefield, while she was uh, reading meters, reported, reported how shocked she was to find out how many citizens in that small little town were on oxygen tanks. And when her own mother and father died of lung-related diseases, she began to do some research into the town's problems with a vermiculite mine uh, there that was very popular. Uh, vermiculite, a substance that's found in insulation, a very dangerous form uh, of asbestos. And so Benefield went after her research, and she suddenly found that the mortality rate in Libby, Montana, was like 80 times higher than any other place in the civilized world. And so you would think that what would follow the revelation of that information would be a massive, you know, uh, sort of an expensive cleanup effort to fix the problem and save people. But instead, what Benefield found, people just didn't want to hear about it. She began to shout from every media outlet she could just what was going on. But the responses of the people of the town were things like this. Well, honestly, if it was that bad, somebody would have told us while she's telling them. Or, you know what, I don't, I don't want to come off looking like a victim here. I don't want to be one of those people. Or, hey, come on, every industry has its risks. We knew it before we knew it. And of course, Benefit was incredulous. People are there dying all around them, and yet they persisted in their pride. Think about that for a second. People were more put off by the whistleblower than they were with dying. Okay, here's my question I want to leave you with this morning. How do you account for that? Because it's not just Libby, Montana where that happens. I would argue that it's in the heart of every single person in this room. The question is, for us, how far will you be willing to look into what's really driving you? What's really making you who you are? Or let me ask it this way. Who will explain you to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do just that, that you would lead us into clarity about ourselves because, Father, we are so often confused by ourselves. We don't know what motivates us. We don't understand why we do the things we do. And yet you and your grace have unlocked for us a great, the great joy of understanding that we were built to know you and our hearts are restless until we find ourselves in you. Father, is it possible that even in this last final song, as we sing, there might be someone in this room who did, would indeed find themselves in you, maybe even for the first time, because of the way in which your word speaks to us? Could you do that? Would you be that light to us this morning? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.